Open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Luke. We are in chapter 11 again. Uh, we have been going through the Gospel of Luke for um, a little over a year and a bit, uh, but we've taken, uh, we've paused a little bit at the beginning of chapter 11 to do a mini-series um, called The Disciples' Prayer because we really felt, I felt, we felt as a church, boy, we really needed to press in and lean into prayer. And I hope as we go through today's passage and today's subject that you will all agree that there's a lot of learning going on about prayer, which is good. But I want to actually ask the question a little bit later, how really is it going? How really has your prayer life changed? And so we arrive at this point, I, I, I kind of alluded to it and promised on the first week that it, it started off as a four-week series, but it could turn into five weeks. Guess what? It's turning into five weeks. And the reason for that is, is that there's just too much uh, wonderful uh, information and background for us to unpack on the last two. So this Sunday will be Forgive Us. We've already looked at Our Father, Kingdom Come, Daily Bread. Today we're looking at Forgive Us. And then next week we're going to look at the last part, which is Deliver Us. But also next week what, what I hope we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to practice together what it looks like, it could look like, to pray this prayer together in the gathering, in the service. So I think that'll be encouraging. Let me read for you once again the passage in Luke, verses 1 to 4, and also the, the, the singular verse uh, from Matthew, where another recollection, another recording of the disciples' prayer is recorded by Matthew in chapter 6, verse 12. So let me read the text. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And from Matthew and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray one more time. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, Father, we thank you so much. Father, we are so grateful that as we've been studying this, this so brief passage that we can just run past, that you, Holy Spirit, have been speaking to us to slow us down to help us to realize one more time why this was so important in the life and ministry of Jesus, that this one disciple should ask Jesus to teach them all and us by extension to pray. So, Father, I just pray today, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just take this passage, you would take the words that you've given to me, that you would change them at the last moment if necessary so that they can actually speak truthfully to our hearts from your word. We pray for your blessing today. We pray that we would become people of prayer. First and foremost, we'd be known for how we pray, how we love one another, how we love you. And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So I felt just a little bit of a brief recap since we didn't have church gathering last Sunday. Wasn't that awesome? Hey, 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 settle down. Okay. <laughs> Yes, the power was out, so we had to tell everybody to go have a good family day, and I'm hoping you do. So a little recap. Why are we 
um, stopping at this point in time and, and doing this mini-series. Well, I've alluded to it already. You know, we felt led into it. Uh, this is the disciples' prayer. But we also realized that this chapter 11 is a, is a great turning point in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus, up until this point in time, has, of course, he's been born of a virgin, and we read all that, we went through all that, but then at 30 years of age, he comes to John the Baptist to be baptized, led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, and he defeats him, and then his ministry begins, and he begins with preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God, and then calling these disciples to follow him, these these fishermen and tax collectors and men and women to follow him. And what we've seen in the first uh, 10 chapters, at least anyway, is in the first 1.8 years of this ministry, crowds, thousands upon thousands of people are following Jesus, along with the 12, who he appoints, and the other 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 men and women who are loyally following him and beginning to believe that he is possibly the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. But there's these crowds, and they're following him. This is a pivotal point. It's a change in the ministry and the teaching of Jesus. It's from this point on that Jesus is going to turn his focus. The crowds will show up occasionally for the next seven or eight chapters. But his teaching turns specifically to his disciples, to his disciples, because he knows, he knows that in just a little over a year, he will go to the cross. He will die, be buried, rise again, and then he's going to be turning over the mission of the church to these less than well-prepared people. Amen? What are they going to need? Prayer. That's why Luke inserts inserts this here. Luke is this skeptic Gentile who's come to faith in Jesus Christ, probably through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and he's set up this orderly account, and it's at this point he makes it clear that from this point on, it's going to begin with prayer, with prayer. And that's why at this point in the life and ministry, the Holy Spirit prompts this one disciple to ask Jesus to teach us to pray. And so the question is, why? Why does he? Why is he? Well, yes, the Holy Spirit, there's many reasons. But one of the reasons clearly has to be this. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 11. I'll put it on screen for you where it says this. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. So so why? Why? Well, clearly these disciples are watching Jesus at this point in time in a certain place. It doesn't matter where it is. He's praying. He's been doing this all the time. He will continue to do this all the time. There is nothing that takes place. Luke's gospel is amazing for this, actually, more so than the other gospels. They mention it, but Luke's gospel specifically and always mentions and makes the point that before Jesus does anything, before he asks the Father, he prays to the Father, actually, it is a prayer, to to affirm for him who the 12 should be before he feeds the 5,000, before he walks on the water, before he does anything. Prayer. Prayer. Before every major decision or event. He's modeling that, isn't he? That's why at this point, this one disciple goes, can you teach us to do that? I mean, they've already seen him raise people from the dead. And all the miracles, it's not a matter if they want to be empowered for that, but they, they know they need to learn how to pray. So the question is, what is Jesus praying for? That's a good question. When he prays, 
Is he praying for wisdom and knowledge? And those are things that we're encouraged to pray for. Well, the answer is no, not likely. What did Jesus pray for? Jesus prayed for power. Jesus was fully man, just like you and me, fully man or fully woman. He was fully man. He needed the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, to be able to accomplish everything he did, just like you and I do. In fact, if you want to learn about how Jesus would pray, there's a whole chapter in John's Gospel dedicated to that. There are little snippets here and there, you know, where he wept over Jerusalem and he prayed to the Father, the Lord of the harvest, to send more laborers in the harvest. So he prayed for the mission. He prayed for the, the proclamation of the kingdom, for kingdom expansion. But he prayed constantly for the Father's will and that he would have the power to accomplish the Father's will. John chapter 17, whole chapter, is Jesus praying to his Father. They call it the high priestly prayer. I actually would call it, I'm not a, I know I'm not a scholar like those people who translated your Bibles, but I would call that the Lord's Prayer. And what we're studying is the disciples' prayer, how we should pray, okay? So remember this as well. This is, as I've said, the disciples' prayer. The prayer that Jesus is teaching you and I, us, to pray. He would not pray this prayer, would he? No. And primarily for the reason for the text that we're in today. Jesus would never pray to the Father to forgive him. He was without sin. He was perfect in every way. So this is our prayer. This is our prayer that he's giving to us and that we're praying for forgiveness. So let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. I alluded to it earlier. This is the fourth week now in this this passage, in this text, in this study. And so my question for you is, how's your prayer life going? It's much better, right? Huge, right? It's like changed dramatically. No? No, just... Okay. Let's, let's face it. We've learned in the last few weeks, we've learned, this is important, we've learned to pray to our Father, despite what fathers or examples of fathers we've had in this world and in our lives today, we now have seen in that first message that God is the perfect Father in every possible way. And that's how He reveals Himself is a father, and he also reveals himself, we learned in that first message, as our better and perfect patriarch. That's a good word. It's a really good word. So you also have learned how to hallow his name, how to hallow his name. And we learned in that first message that it's, it's about actually in this prayer exactly what we're doing. It's just naming him to be who he declares himself to be, our father, our God, our creator the lover of our souls. We hallow his name. And we've learned to pray that he would cause his kingdom to come. We've learned to pray that, Lord, make your kingdom to come as it is in heaven here on earth. Like, make it happen. We want that to happen. And here's what we don't want to happen. Our kingdom to come. My kingdom to come. Well, that's a big lesson, isn't it? It's about his kingdom and his will, not yours, not mine. Why? Well, his is perfect. And so we've learned that, that we we are asking that his reign and his rule come perfectly on earth and into our lives. And then we learned and turned our attention two weeks ago now to what Rudy preached on to daily bread. And he did a really good job of of, uh, essentially teaching us two things. First, 
was overall the, the, the fact that, uh, or the question of answering the question, why we pray. And we saw that as he began in his introduction, that people actually pray in our world today, right? People do pray. Oprah prays. It's an interesting prayer that she prays, but she prays, and other people pray, right? And, and even, for example, I see it sometimes on Facebook, and, and people will, will post things like, you know, R.I.P., you know, rest in peace, right? And, and they, they're not Christians, but they'll, they'll put that out there. You know, that is a, that is a prayer, of sorts, right? And then I've also seen people put on, online things like sending you positive vibes and, and thoughts. Have you ever received any of those? Yeah, they're awesome, aren't they? But, but that's a form of prayer, right? So we, we've seen that it's kind of natural. It's in our DNA that the reality is an awful lot of people, especially listen, when things get challenging, when there is the prospect of death and dying, and disease, and hurt, and pain, and loss, people pray. People, everybody, Christian and non, for the most part, pray. Secondly, we learned last week that there is a key to these petitions. There's a really interesting key, isn't it? It's, it's not about, Lord, give me my daily bread, right? We, we, we saw consistently that that one disciple said, teach us to pray. And the whole prayer is about us and our and we. There's a personalization that needs to take place as we will see today when it comes to our text for today. But the reality is, is that it's a corporate thing. It's a body thing. It's a family thing. We're praying that God would bless us, provide for us, be in our lives corporately as a church. So your prayer life, as I've already asked, is way better, right? It's already improved dramatically, right? Well, I think I've heard from some of you, and some of you have been saying, no, this, is, this has been a wake-up call. This has been, this has been good. We've, we've learned some things. And like I like to say from time to time, that's great. But what has to happen for you and for me is consistently that learning has to go from head to where? To heart. It's got to go to our hearts. It really does. And so I want to suggest to you today that if, if your prayer life hasn't dramatically changed so far yet, I want to suggest it's because of one reason specifically. You don't believe, we don't believe in the power of prayer. That there's power in prayer. Has anyone experienced the power of prayer? The power? Thank you. Yeah, good. It's powerful. People do get healed today, you know. Marriages are restored today, you know. Lost ones are found today, you know. But there's power in it, and it's not you and me. It's in the Holy Spirit of God. The other thing that I think we'll learn from this passage today, I hope we'll learn today, that the power is, yes, in the Holy Spirit, of course, but also it's in the gospel. That's what this is about today. The whole prayer is about the gospel. But what we're going to see today is this is about the gospel. So your sermon title for today is Forgive Us. Hope to look at it with you in three ways. Number one, forgive what? Like, what, what are we asking for forgiveness for? We need to pay attention to that. Secondly, forgive us daily. And then thirdly, as we forgive others daily. So let's dive into number one, forgive what? I'll put the, both Luke and Matthew's segment for this up on screen. 
where it says, and forgive us our sins in Luke 3a, and, and forgive us our debts in Matthew 6.12a. Got a question for you. You know me. I'm full of questions. I love this. How Canadian are you? Like, now, I know some of you. I know some of you. I can see some of you. Like, you're working on your PR, you know, your permanent residency. Some of you have uh, just recently, in the last few years, become Canadian. And uh, I actually, you know, wrote to the government and said, yeah, Lorraine's okay. You can invite her into Canada. And uh, we like to pick on her. She's, she's our daughter. Um, <clears throat> so, so some of you, like, you know, we, you know, how Canadian are we, right? And there's certain things, I know you know this, that uh, we are known for as Canadians, Right? And I know that um, growing up and, 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 and so forth in my life, I, I, I know that you know, it didn't matter where I went in the United States, people were always waiting for me or for you or for anybody to drop that two-letter Canadianism. You know what it is? A, exactly. Like, you know, A, A. So, so I had a business life before becoming a pastor. And at one time I went to Portland, Oregon to do a seminar on... Um, Loudspeakers, you know, loudspeaker technology into a large stereo chain, blah, blah, blah. And anyway, I finished the one-hour presentation, right? And this guy comes up to me. And I think he's going to tell me what a great seminar it was, right? And no, he doesn't do that. He grabs my hand. He goes, that's amazing. In one hour, you didn't say A once. <laughs> and I looked at him and kind of shocked him because I went, huh? <laughs> that's what Americans say. Just want to let you know. Okay, let's just be fair here. It's A. But in the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years, there's another word that we've become internationally known for. You know what the word is, right? Sorry. Sorry. Like, I'm sorry. Like, it's constant. Right? Like, people in the United States, like, actually, there's been little segments, com- comedian segments on there, and they, and they show Canadians, and they do little interviews. But, and, and for a while there, most Americans were kind of like, you know, like, it's amazing. Canadians are really kind and polite. Why? Because we're saying sorry all the time. But, but tides are turning a little bit, I think. I've actually seen some articles where they're, they're, they're getting a little annoyed with this constant sorry business, right? And it's almost like it's turning on us, and they're thinking, like, it's actually some kind of, like, a passive-aggressive behavior that, where they're just trying to, you know, um, avoid conflict. You know, so sorry, sorry, you know, like, mm. So it, it's not like we're being seen as polite anymore. It's, it's a far cry from that. It, in fact, they, they think it's kind of like a latent smugness. You know, superiority thing. I don't know. I'm not so sure. But I must confess, I, I, I say it all the time as I was preparing for this. I'm catching myself. I'm at Independent Grocer the other day, free plug, no problem. And, and I'm there, and I, like, you know how they have the, the checkouts where, you know, self-serve checkouts? And I run up, and I, I realize I've just stepped in front of this, this lady, you know, and, uh, and I go, oh, sorry. No, no, you go ahead. And, you know, she, she literally goes, no, no, we arrived at the same time. Sorry, you go ahead. <laughs> It's just ridiculous. You know, it was, and I'm going, no, no, no. I wanted to say, you're older than me. You go, no, But no, I didn't do that. <laughs> I'm sure you can think of the same thing, right? It, it's just, check it this week. We're all going to be very you know, self-conscious about it. But, but we, we say that a lot. So I, I want to suggest, I mean, I'm not trying to be funny here, but make us think about it a little bit. It, I'm wondering a little bit if just simply saying that all the time, flippantly saying sorry. Now, I know often we mean it, but just saying it or, or I apologize, I'm sorry, you know, things like that, that maybe um, we're losing touch with what it really means to seek forgiveness, to be forgiven, and to forgive others, especially if people are always just saying, I'm sorry, I apologize. At what point do you and I think it's kind of flippant? 
and just passive aggressive and wanting to avoid conflict or wanting to avoid to get to the root of what's really going on here, whether there truly is an offense. So what does it mean we need to ask this morning to be forgiven? What are we needing forgiveness for? This opens up, I think, a, another list of words. You know, we choose today, the, rather than use the word that we're going to get to, obviously, um, we use words like, well, mistake. Well, I made a mistake. You know, like, I, I had a little lapse in judgment. You know, things like that. A little slip up. There's a big one today where it's like, you know, it doesn't matter what people do. It's like, well, you offended me. You know, you, you disagreed with my point of view on this, so you disag- you've offended me. Actually, in our culture today, I want to suggest to you that that offendedness is becoming like potentially the greatest of all, I'm not going to mention the word yet because we haven't got to it yet, but you know what I'm going to say, right? It's interesting how that's happened. And even with mistakes, right, it's like, well, there's, there's sort of grades, like there's small mistakes, little mistakes, bad mistakes. But then the question is, who becomes the judge as to where the bar is with these sins? Oh, I just said it, didn't I? So what would you do, for example, here's a little illustration. What would you do, for example, if you caught your child? We have a lot of kids. We have grandparents here. You all know this. But you catch your child in a lie. There were 25 cookies in that jar. There are now none. Where'd they go? <laughs> and your child's, you know, like denying it or whatever. And then you finally catch them in it. And, you, and they, they, what if your child simply said, sorry, can I go play now? Now, if your parenting style is like that, we need to have some counseling, right? Because the truth of the matter is, what should you be doing? You should be going, Johnny, Billy, Mary, whatever, come here. We need to have a little talk. We need to have a talk about the truth and about lying and how wrong it is and how bad it is. So there's a problem here, I think. I think we need to understand the problem for you and I when we come to prayer. When we come to this segment of the prayer, when we ask God to forgive us, I wonder if we haven't learned to minimize the importance, the gravity of being truly, truly sorry, truly apologetic. And then as a result, if we haven't lost sight of our actual need for forgiveness, which must begin with confession. Confession. I'm just thinking about this at this very moment, but honestly, if I'm not able to privately in prayer to God confess in honesty my sin, my, my offense towards him or even towards another person that I've committed in private, it's probably more difficult to do that with a brother, a sister, a friend, a husband, a wife, or a child. So that, friends, is why I believe Jesus continues this disciple's prayer this way. With forgive us, he's saying, look, you need to pray this. All of you. You need to pray this. Father, forgive us. Forgive us. That word us, by the way, first person plural. So let's remember it's first person and then plural. So let's dig in here, first of all, and let's define it. Let's define right here what it is that we're asking our Father to forgive us for. Come on, you guys all know it. It's right there in the text. I've already slipped up. It's that lovely three-letter word that every preacher, not every, but many preachers are like, well, I don't want to say it every Sunday, but most people who come don't really want to hear it every Sunday, right? And it's that word sin. That's what we're actually asking God to forgive us from, isn't it? 
It's our sin. It's a lovely word. It's, it isn't exactly why, I think it's actually why we would prefer to use the word mistake or, you know, a little slip up or things like that, because as soon as we define it as that, that's a lot more challenging. It's a lot more challenging. So now listen, this is the one thing. This is the one thing. When we nail it down to that, when we, we, we call it what it is, when we call it sin, I want to suggest to you today, this is the one disease that every human being has. I want you to think about that this morning. You know, we, we, we talk about diseases of our bodies, things that you cannot see that are in us, whether it's cancers and various other things. And a person on the outside could look very healthy, right? And, and yet th- there is this germ inside of them, this disease inside of them. You don't see it. Everything looks good on the outside, but it is there. And you know what it is doing? It is killing them. Please see sin that way. That's what it's doing. It's a disease within us, and it is killing us. There's a cure. That's the gospel, and that's the good news that we'll see today. So notice also this. Jesus uses the plural. Father, forgive us our sins. <laughs> now, you've got to remember again, God, Jesus is God. So essentially, he's saying this when he's looking at his disciples and you and I here today, right? He's going, listen, I'm God, and I know this about you. You sin, and you sin a lot. <laughs> it, guess I'm fine. And you, you need to confess it often because you sin a lot. He's just being honest with us. That's good news. So how should we define this sin? How should we define it clearly? What does God see as sin since it is God we have sinned against first of all? You realize that, right, too, right? So yes, we have an offense against a brother or a sister, against another person. We do commit sins against other people. But we need to understand first and foremost, even hidden sins are not hidden. Amen? Psalm 51, the Psalm of David, which we're going to look at in closing today, says this. David's words. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. It's packed a lot in there. So we're going to look back, as I said on this psalm, a little uh, more as part of our application today. But here we understand that ultimately all of our sins, ultimately all of our sins are against God first and foremost. So how does God define sin? How does he actually define it? Well, it's in our text today. There are many different ways we could define it throughout Scripture, but let's just take it from our text today because it's there. In both Luke and Matthew, the definition of it is actually there. So let's have a look at that. I'll put it back on screen for you. In Luke's record, we see the word sin, right, which in the Greek is sins, plural, which in the Greek is the word hamartai, which literally has this meaning, literally. It's a long definition, but it's the literal definition of the Greek word means to sin, to miss, listen to this, the true end and scope of our lives, which is God, and to act contrary to the law of God. Matthew records the word debts, which is, again, we saw this a few weeks ago. These two prayers are not the same prayer. Jesus would have taught his disciples at different times more about prayer. They asked on many occasions. Actually, it's in Luke's gospel where he's asked to teach them how to pray in this way. 
And so he's using different Greek words or Aramaic words translated in the Greek. And so we see this word for debts, which literally, again, is a different word, but complements the other word for sins, which is the word ophelima, which literally means this. Listen, to owe a debt that is strictly due. So it's not like a student loan that you're hoping one day the government will forgive. No, this is strictly due. Yeah, I saw some smiles. That's okay. We'll pray for your debt. This is strictly due. So listen, we can see two things from these verses, I think, about this. First, from debt we know that, listen, when we sin, every time we sin, we start at zero. Actually, we're born in sin, but let's just look at it. We, we start at zero, and every time we sin, we, we incur a negative debt balance. And it just keeps going lower and lower and deeper and deeper and bigger and deeper And it must be paid. Every time we sin, every time we sin, this balance grows and it grows. There's no way out of that one for any human being. There's good news. There's good news. Secondly, however, and this is, I think, really quite beautiful, and it's really the gist of the gospel. It's the thing that we need to see here, which is beautiful. And like I said already, sin is killing us. It's killing us our sins against God, and in this way. It's killing us because it's keeping us. Our sins are keeping us from living the life, the life of flourishing that God actually intends for us and created us to have. Oh, we, we, think, we think sometimes that, you know, becoming a Christian is going to be giving up all those lovely things, the things that are sinful, but they're also a lot of fun. So there's going to be a lot of, a lot, lack of joy. In God. No, no, no. God has a better idea of what it means to flourish as a human being, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. He created you. He created me. He knows what will incur, encourage our flourishing. And so it's a beautiful thing that we need to see. So we can, as I say, take two things from this. One is that there's this negative balance growing, but the other side of it is, is that there's this, this beautiful thing that it's, it's, God wants to see us flourish. Our sins are killing us. So this is the key thing about God and sin that I think most people in our culture, in our world, but even sometimes Christians can get wrong and do not understand. You see, God is not this cosmic judge that's just sitting up there with a bolt of lightning in his hand waiting for you and I to mess up, right? And then, boom! <laughs> that's a picture people have of God, though, isn't it, in our world and culture today? I think even some Christians might have that, you know, every time I say, oh, you know, that all he's looking to do every day is every time we sin, he's looking to punish us. Punish us. No, forgive us. So you know that there's this proverbial bolt of lightning that some people believe that he's wanting to do. That, that's not our God. It's not our God. We see it in the word that you, uh, Luke uses here from the very lips of Jesus, which suggests this. Suggests this. Sin is literally killing us preventing us from flourishing in this life in the way that God intended us to flourish. His plan always was, always is, and always will be for you and I to flourish in Him, in the way that He created us. And that is why He wants to save us from our sins. That's what He wants to do. From the very beginning when we place our faith in Him, but also in our lives and walk as Christians today, He wants to save us, not punish us. Forgive us. 
which heals us of this disease. So on our first point, when we ask forgive what, we understand that we are asking our Heavenly Father to, yes, forgive us our sins. Me, personally, first person, but also all of us in our daily prayers. You can be praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ who have confessed to you that they're struggling in a personal discipleship relationship. You can pray for them too, corporately, in your daily prayers. So in this plural request, what we're doing is we're asking in the form of confession, we come to our Father in praying to Him this way, and this is important. Hear me. It's not, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Forgive us our trespasses. Okay, done. No. (laughs) This sin, that sin, oh, that sin again, this other sin, oh, I just remember this other one, all of them. Daily. It's not just one, forgive me all my sins. Oh, you're good, God. Thank you. You know what they are anyway. No, the idea here is that these are to be spelled out, confessed, one by one. That's point number one. Point number two, forgive us daily. Give us each day, look at this, our daily bread and forgive us our sins. So I've suggested this before, but I want to repeat it for you. This prayer must be, must be seen as taught by Jesus as something that he, he expects, he suggests, not quite command, but suggests strongly that you pray every day. That you pray every day. Something like this. That you pray this every day. The language and tense suggests that each petition is to be understood as a daily petition. So I'm not sure about you, but for many years, I I certainly didn't see it that way. I certainly saw about daily bread and my needs and my job and my money and my needs for daily bread as the thing that was daily. All the rest of that stuff, uh, we'll get to that. No. These are all to be seen as required petitions daily. So, I mean, who really wants to do that when you think about it? I mean, I've been challenged this week, as I've, well, last two weeks now, because I didn't get to preach this last Sunday, and actually revisited, and the Holy Spirit said, oh, I think we're going to change a few things, which is good. But I've been thinking about it, and, and, and I'll mention in a second how I was raised, which was a little different when it comes to this prayer. But, I mean, the reality is I'm thinking about it. So that's a challenge, isn't it? I mean, how often do you want to, I mean, do you really want to every day go before the Lord, your heavenly Father, your creator God, and besides asking him for your daily needs and provisions and things like that, also every day to ask him to forgive you your sins? Do you want to be reminded of your sins every day? Come on, be honest. You don't, do you? You're all looking very doubtful at this moment, okay? I don't think we do. I don't think we do. And so Jesus is encouraging this, and his point is this. He's saying, as much as, listen, as much as you need daily bread, both physical and spiritual, as we learned in that message, you also need daily confession and forgiveness of your sins. Because as far as Jesus is concerned, it's this. Praying for for forgiveness is equally important as eating. Because... If you don't eat, what will happen? You will die. If you don't confess your sins, what will happen? They will kill you. 
they will kill you. Anyone ever heard the phrase, keeping short accounts? Raise your hands. It's going to be mostly the older people in the room, I know. Well, many young people too. Keeping shorter accounts. Like, where did that come from, right? Have you ever heard of that? Like, now, actually, the saying primarily came from the world of commerce, right? Banking and commerce and so forth. And the idea uh, of that saying really was, you know, paying your bills, maybe not taking out too many loans in the first place, but paying your bills on time, keeping short accounts, right? Keeping a spreadsheet if you do today or, or a budget and making sure you pay your bills and keeping short accounts, right? But I also remember hearing this, however, when, when I was being raised as, as a kid, like, and, and uh, really, I, that you need to keep, you know, confessing your sins to God because you need to keep short accounts with God, right? Now, as many of you know, like for the first 20 years, 23 years of my life, uh, I was raised as a Catholic, right? I was raised as a Catholic, and so we, we were taught as very, it was a lot of guilt there, okay? So we were taught as children when we were younger that you need to keep short accounts, you know, you need to confess your sins. You need to go to the confessional and the, in the very dark room and the priest would open the door and you need to confess your sins to him, right? And, and as much as you, like, you, you need to do this to, so that all your sins will be forgiven, right? And this is a challenge for us as Christians and Protestant churches, isn't it? Because we've already been singing about it today. You know, we, we believe and been taught as Christians that all of our sins were paid for on the cross all at one time by Jesus, Right? So, so why are we praying this every day? What's with this keeping short accounts? Well, I, again, remember as a kid, like I used to go, and honestly, there was a period of time in my, my life where I'd, I'd get a little fearful, right? And because I, I'd go to confession, and, and, I, and I, sometimes I think I need to write down a list, right? Because here was the deal. When you go into the confessional, you need to make sure you confess every sin. Because what could happen is if you miss one, and you leave the confessional, and you get hit by a bus, you could be damned to hell for that one sin, yeah, that's not funny, is it? But it's kind of what, you know, how I was taught about sin and, and confessing it. And it's, I think, kind of sad, isn't it? But that, that was true. Then years later, when I, I truly did become a Christian, I, I heard the saying again, you need to keep short accounts with God. Because here was the thing. Here's what sin does for you, Christian, New Testament Christian, in the, in the Protestant realm, is that what it does is it severs your relationship, right? Your fellowship with God. Anybody ever heard that? Okay, but there's a problem with that, isn't it? Think about it. There's a problem with that when it comes to the gospel. Jesus has died for all of our sins in our place and on the cross, right? At that point, we are fully accepted and fully approved by God. We can no longer lose his acceptance and approval. So this keeping short accounts thing is... I think it's a good idea, but the reasoning and rationale behind it is different. And I hope we'll see that at this point. It's about the gospel. It's about the gospel. And here's how that actually works. I know, they're rowdy, aren't they? It's awesome. It's the teacher's fault. <clears throat> so here's how it works. When you and I become a Christian, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, when the Holy Spirit ha- does the work of regeneration, that, that beginning work in your heart where all of a sudden the, the things that you're hearing about Jesus through the Word of God, through the preaching of it, through other people coming to you, all of a sudden starts to take root in your heart. That's the Holy Spirit, by the way. It's not you doing anything. It's not me doing anything. It's Him. When that begins to happen and you're becoming alive to who God is, and He is now coming into your heart, you're not asking Him, He does. 
and you place your faith and trust and you know at that point in time that you are a Christian, you have now been saved. From what? From the penalty, the debt of sin. It's not the end of the gospel. Right? We know that. But it's not the end of the gospel. There is this ongoing growing in our faith and in righteousness in Christ in this life. Theologically, we call it sanctification. Wonderful word. It is a great word. And it's why we often read words like this in Colossians uh, chapter 3, where Paul says, Put therefore to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, large, large subject, right? Impurity, another large category. Passions, another large category. Evil desire, covetousness, greed, for example, which is idolatry. So, so how do we do that, Paul? We're being challenged to put these things to death, to put sin to death in our lives so that it doesn't kill us. How, in fact, do we do that? Well, if we understand it this way, it's this. The gospel continues in our lives, guys. Because through our lives and through our sanctification, as we grow in our faith in Jesus Christ, the point is this. The point is is that we continue to be saved by the gospel, by the truth of the gospel, in the power of the Holy Spirit, from the power of sin over us today in this life. Amen? That's why we need to pray this. That's why we need to pray this. So how do we do that? Well, we confess our sins daily. That's how. It sounds simple, right? Okay, I'm going to confess my sins, every one of them. I'm going to detail it. But how does that work? Think about it. How does that work? I want you to imagine it this way. Starting tomorrow, try this. I'm going to do it, okay? Anyone want to join me? Starting tomorrow, try this. Try this. Take stock of your life just the previous few days, maybe a week, right? Of what you know before God are sins that you've committed against him primarily, but also in your life. Lying, okay, falsifying the truth, not quite the whole truth. I don't need to bring you into those things. You can, I'm sure, come up with those things. Sins that are literally killing you. And listen, those that you love, and start confessing them to God every day. What do you think might happen if you were to do that? Like, continually do that every single day. Confessing the same sins, the same one, your favorite one, over, oh, we have pet sins. Oh, yes, you do. We do. Those are the ones, by the way, that we don't put on the list every day. We kind of want to hold on to them put them on the list. What might just actually happen? Think about it. Let me ask that. Let me, are you tired of any specific sin? Like, is there one sin that's been going on and you know it's been going on? Are you tired about it? I mean, are you just done with it? Hear me. Hear me. I don't think we will be done with any of those until we confess them every day. And at some point, as mature human beings, men and women, growing in maturity in our faith in Jesus Christ, we just get tired of it. And then we can do what Paul suggested we do, put it to death. See it for what it is and go, Lord, 
It's been like three months I've been praying this every day. Thank you. I now see things exactly the way you do. And I'm done with this. Simple. Number three, and quickly as we close, as we forgive others daily. Listen, this is the other side of it, right? This is when you pray every day, there needs to be also this prayer where we're praying out and going, okay, Lord, forgive us. Forgive me. Here's my list. Here's my sins. There's that one. I've been praying about it for two or three minutes. I'm tired of it. Please help me kill this thing because it's killing me. But Lord, also, there are these three people that I have just not forgiven. I'm just not a very forgiving person. You know, often I think people, I know I have, read these verses related to how we forgive. You know, forgive everyone or, or already have forgiven. And then if you read on in Matthew, he talks about if you do not forgive, God will not forgive you. And, you know, we kind of missed the point. The key point is this. Those who know through practice of confession that they are forgiven become forgiving people. It's not the other way around. You don't learn to ask for forgiveness by being such a wonderful, forgiving person. Have you ever seen it work that way? Because I haven't. It always happens the other way around. Those who know after praying how truly, desperately wicked and sinful they are and still are willing to confess those sins are those who are actually willing to forgive others. If we're faithful to confess, listen, and ask for our own forgiveness, and we experience, listen, we experience in that God's mercy and God's grace. Now we're the kind of people where we can extend that kind of grace and mercy to those who've hurt us, sinned against us, and offended us. I don't know how to do that without the first. Let me suggest this. If you are still recounting all the ways and repeating over and over in your mind the story of what's happened between you and someone else, over and over the hurt and the pain, let me just kindly and gently suggest to you, you haven't forgiven them yet. I want to leave you with Psalm 51, the Psalm of David. I want to encourage you to go home and read it. This is the story. This is the prayer that David prayed after. Remember the story? Nathan comes to him and tells him the story about this this guy who's really terrible. You know, he's been really bad, terrible sinner. And David's like, well... Who is this person? I'll find him. I'll deal with him. It's you, David. You committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then you killed her husband. You're an adulterer, and you're a murderer. Hey, be careful. Jesus said that we're all those things in the Sermon on the Mount, right? You look on a woman or a man with lust in your heart, you are a what? Adulterer. You become so angry with someone. In God's economy, it's the same thing. Let me read you his prayer. I'll put the last three verses on screen as the end to our prayer and our message for today. But listen to his words. This man, King David, it's a beautiful prayer. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. 
According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Please listen to how he owns his sin. Now, the Spirit of God has brought him to the point of owning his sins. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin sin did my mother conceive me. That's the way we're born, by the way. That's the way we're born, and he's acknowledging that. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And then he appeals to God. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean, free of disease. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot them out. Put them behind you. That's what God does when we ask for forgiveness and blot out all of my iniquities. And then he ends with these words, the chorus of the song that we all love. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. When? When I die? No, today. Now, clean me. Create in me this clean heart, right spirit. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me, look, to the joy of your salvation. I want your salvation fully now. We should want that. And uphold me with a willing spirit. It's a pretty good prayer, isn't it? Let's pray together now. Let's pray together.